Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today, we have Adam Hallisey, who is uh, the editor-in-chief of The Progressive Brief, which uh, is a, an interesting online uh, magazine most of you guys are probably familiar with, since you're all politics heads. Um, and they did a, a really nice piece about Andrew Yang that actually mentioned yours truly. So I'm kind of excited to talk to Adam. Hey, Adam, say hi. Hi, guys. Good to be here. So, Adam, I understand that the beginning of the progressive brief it kind of started out almost as like a hobby and then became a money-making endeavor, and it was quite a journey. Can you uh, – well, first of all, just you know, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself on a personal level, whatever you want to say, and then maybe share that. No problem. Exodus. Yeah. So I'm um, a 20-year-old uh, law student here in Cork in Ireland. Um, I'm very interested in politics. Uh, over the last year or so in Ireland, I've written a number of articles for the largest online political website uh, nationally, also one of our largest national newspapers, and also for the Progressive Brief, um, which you mentioned I'm the editor-in-chief at, and uh, I run that along with a number of um, friends and colleagues. Uh, the Progressive Brief first started in 2015, and as you mentioned, it was a really personal kind of um, way of spending time, essentially. Uh, I was 15 years old at the time. And I started off writing on very policy-focused issues. Um, I remember I did book reviews of some of Thomas Sowell's uh, books, of some of um, Thomas Frank's books. I was discussing like the philosophical efficacies of capitalism. And while it had virtually no readership, um, at that stage, I just enjoyed writing it as a self-challenging exercise. And also as, I suppose you could say, a way of any engagement I got, I was happy with because I knew that it was improving my own political um, and economic knowledge. After a while then, I suppose I moved into more contemporary issues and inevitably um, ended up covering the US political, uh, presidential election, which was happening at the time. Um, I wrote an article that was generally in favour of Bernie Sanders, which would have been in, li in line with my kind of radical left beliefs um, that you almost inadvertently have as a 15-year-old. And um, the article itself blew up. Uh, it received hundreds of thousands of reads. And so um, I thought to myself, well, I might do that again. So I wrote another article that was generally in favor of Bernie Sanders and uh, generally against Hillary Clinton. And that one similarly blew up. And so after a few weeks of writing pro-Bernie Sanders articles, I realized that there was a real market for this. There was a real, um, the term I always use is almost rabid base that was craving this sort of um, no-holds-barred pro-progressivism, pro-Bernie Sanders in that case, um, news agenda where completely filtered to their own needs, their own preconceived ideological biases. And so I um, recruited others, uh, pro professors, students, authors, radio hosts, all became involved in the Progressive Brief um, as we covered the 2016 uh, presidential election. But in the midst of all this success, and as you say, we started earning money and we started branching off um, in doing interviews, doing podcasts, I, I, I sensed kind of the artificiality of um, the satisfaction which I was gaining from the site and it's because I didn't actually believe in a lot of the stuff I was saying as I continued to read into the data the evidence and the kind of specifics of US politics I realized that I didn't I wouldn't self-classify myself as a progressive even though the website that I had set up was called the progressive brief so the turning point then came when Bernie Sanders lost uh, the Democratic primary and we ran a targeted poll amongst our uh, readership and it was a simple question. It was, um, now that Sanders has lost, 
Are you going to support the Democratic nominee or would you consider yourself Bernie or Bust, a sort of movement which advocated um, supporting the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, or writing in Sanders, or some even said it's, it's Trump. So when the results of that came back with about 15,000, 20,000 votes and 80% of our readership said they were Bernie or Bust, as opposed to people that would be willing to support Hillary Clinton, I knew that I was no longer happy with the direction in which the site was going. Um, I took a year or two break from the site and uh, thankfully we've moved away from that in a very different direction, but a direction that I'm much happier with personally. Yeah, um, and your example is a microcosm of a, of a larger phenomenon, which I'm sure you are all too familiar with now as you continue to cover politics. <laughs> yeah. What did you mean when you said you're not sure you would consider yourself a progressive? Could you elaborate on that? Of course. So, I mean, in the most typical sense, when I think of progressive, these previously I would have thought it as anybody that wants to see progress come about, that is dissatisfied with the status quo, and that um, recognizes the issues in society, and their fundamental and primary objective is to initiate progress. Nowadays, I see, as most things in politics is the case, it has much more nuance than that and as much more complex. And like in its essence, when you're trying to label your own politics, it's always very difficult. But it's good to look at who are the other people that associate themselves as progressives? Who are the other people that associate as conservatives, social democrats, uh, classical liberals, centrists? And I just increasingly wasn't comfortable being associated with the brand of progressivism, which was emerging as the kind of defining brand of progressivism, a sort of more radical um, type of left-wing politics. You could, in a very specific sense, say a more socialist brand of economics as opposed to a social democratic or kind of um, um, Nordic model of economics. Um, in terms of social policy, not just standing up for the principle of let um, I'm going to let you live your life and let me live my life and uh, hopefully limit the amount of government interference in people's lives, but ra rather kind of enforcing their own social agenda upon other people. So the, the term instead that I, I, I tend to use as my own brand of politics is that of a centrist, somebody who recognizes the strengths of both the center left and much of the good that the left wing has done, particularly pertaining to social policy, but also recognizes that conservatism has a role to play in this uh, in, in our politics and our political discourse going forward. I always say that I'm a conservative in the sense that I fundamentally believe in the institutions of modern liberal democracies, um, of a capitalist mixed economy, of a generally liberal social policy. But I'm a progressive in the sense that we shouldn't be satisfied with the status quo. And clearly a lot of people aren't satisfied with the status quo. And that's something that has to be addressed as well. Yeah, that's very much in keeping with uh, the theme of this podcast. Uh, I, I'm a self-identified conservative, and most of my co-hosts are um, self-identified progressives. But what we have in common, pretty much all of us, is that we're pragmatists who recognize that you know, when push comes to shove, most people, while they might trend more one way or the other, uh, most people would recognize that there are some things about society that are worth conserving mm -hmm. and that there are some things about society that we should try to improve. Um, and, and so in some ways, uh, I, I, I'm rather impressed. Kudos to you for just embracing the term centrist because that has all kinds of baggage 
in our current political environment. Um, and uh, I, I, <laughs> I give you credit for that. Um, have you have you had a lot of pushback with people saying that, you know, because you're a centrist, you're, you're basically a fascist or some such nonsense? In terms of like the facilitation of more radical right wing politics? Um, well, I've just noticed that, um, for example, in the U.S., the far left called Obama a fascist, which is kind of like uh, crying wolf and and made it that much easier for Trump to win mm-hmm. uh, because the contrast wasn't as stark in the minds of people who believe we were already under fascism for eight years. Um, and and similarly, of course, on um, on the far right, people were calling uh, Obama a socialist. And, and because of that crying wolf, uh, people are, you know, not as afraid of actual socialism as they otherwise would be. Mm-hmm. I've come across that theory a few times. Yeah, I suppose like it is it is a term that people don't tend to use um, to describe their own politics for fear of being called a sellout, for fear of being uh, labeled as somebody who has no political fiber or who doesn't have any particular beliefs. The reason why increasingly I'm starting to find it important to not only use it as a term for my own politics, but also to, to try and encourage others as well, is because we've had a number of defining um, uh, fights and battles which have defined politics um, over previous decades and for a long, long time. I mean, ones to, to mention is the obvious ideological divide between left and right. Um, then there was, uh, there's in uh, over a number of times, there's been kind of the divide of nationalism versus globalism has been um, a debate which people have found has divided um, different countries' political discourses. I'm, I'm starting to fundamentally believe, not only in the US but elsewhere, that the emerging divide is that of, um, in, in, in the simplest sense, centrists versus populists, but in a more kind of theoretical sense, those people who believe fundamentally in the institutions which have brought us this far and knowing that our current climate isn't perfect but knowing that there's so much good has been brought about by capitalism not just in the US but internationally in terms of the eradication of extreme poverty in terms of the proportion of people malnourished in the world um, and knowing that there, if you were offered any time historically that you would be allowed to live in you would pick today in a modern um, capitalist society with a liberal social policy. So populists are people who want to overthrow that in a very radical sense. And we've seen that fail so many times, even in recent years. You don't throw a grenade at a system that isn't performing optimally. You work within that system to try and achieve incremental change. Um, so in the battle of centrists versus populists, I'm very happy to define myself as a centrist and believing fundamentally that that is going to be the battle which will be fought uh, in our political discourse over the next few years. Um, that's happy. I'm, I'm happy to label myself that. Yeah, um, I think you're basically describing more or less my alignment right now, um, although I came at it from a different direction. Uh, but I, I, I characterize the current political environment as like liberalism versus illiberalism or liberalism versus populism because populism is always illiberal. Um, <clears throat> and, 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 and I mean liberal in the classic sense of being in favor of liberal democracy, uh, constitutional protections of minorities against majoritarian rule. Um, the rule of law, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, capitalism, which is which is part of the fruits of classic liberalism coming out of the Enlightenment. And you're, I think you're absolutely right that all of those things are under threat. And part of the reason they're under threat is because what we over here on, in the States call the alt-right and the far left are both hostile to them. 
And they're hostile to them because they're taking um, what's good about society for granted. And they think of themselves as morally righteous. But I just don't see it that way. I see them as rabble rousers in the worst sense of the word. I see them as people who are causing problems. They're going to make society worse because of their actions. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, just to reiterate the point that these, these, the two extremes have more in common with each other than, than people tend to believe. Um, they both are very hostile, as you would say, towards kind of the, the, the current uh, capitalist system, the current social uh, climate. They both engage in the idea of the other marginalization some of them say that all of our problems um can be put at the face of those who are uh who have prospered economically other people say that immigrant and minority groups are um at fault but i mean as you mentioned these people um these populists both on left and right thrive when managing to convince um societies that there are less reasons to be grateful for living in that society than oftentimes is the case. Um, we see this in even in Ireland at the moment, where we have we all accept we have issues in our healthcare system which is not performing optimally and wasn't before COVID nineteen uh, struck. Um, we have issues in our housing sector, but once again, that 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 can't act as a justification for destroying the whole order which has brought about so much progress in the last forty years, which is. Um, made the minimum lifestyle standards in Ireland today unrecognisable compared to what they used to be, which has like brought so many people out of poverty, offered so much, so many opportunities to so many people, and so it, it's genuinely very frustrating for me to see, particularly amongst younger people, a tendency to just nonchalantly discard all of this good which has been done, and um, because of some almost uh, not 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 necessarily minor, but minor in, in the terms of a broader context um, issues. Yeah, I think part of the reason I haven't discarded the term uh, conservative, even though I have given up on the Republican Party, is because um, I, I just feel like in both cases of the far left and the so-called alt-right, the problem is that people have given up on traditionally conservative values. They've given up on the idea of a government respecting individual liberty. They've given up on the idea of self-government and a functional democracy. They've given up on the idea of, uh, of, as you said, incremental progress. And, and, and part, part of, you know, sometimes I say democracy is compromise. Yeah. That's just the truth. You know, like, you know, we, we are not insects. We're not bees. We're not ants. We don't all think and act the same way. We have different values and different priorities, and we're living through history right now. So how much of this um, backlash against the fruits of modern civilization do you think is happening because of the fact that we're living through a historical economic shift toward automation and toward uh, in, an information-based economy as opposed to an industrial economy As a, and, and versus how much of it do you think it is happening because of uh, – um, you know, just the the rise of fake news and 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 clickbait on the internet and uh, the the w- with or without the intervention of foreign powers that are intentionally trying to destroy us from within. I mean, I th- I always remember Yang attribute attributing it to the former, and I do think that kind of um this just this historical paradigm makes uh, it ripe for populists to succeed. But we've seen similar uh, events and periods of magnitude result in. In populist forces succeeding. One um, 
one aspect that I always give credit to conservatism for, and I read an international study recently which found that self-identified conservatives um, generally were far more accepting of differing viewpoints um, um, amongst their own uh, ideological perspective, but even they were far more accepting of left-wing viewpoints than liberals were of uh, conservative viewpoints. I'm, I'm a firm believer in the idea of um, as 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 close as you can get to a, a free a free speech absolutist, I would think of um, the free marketplace of ideas, and whereby you know if if all ideas are given um, an unfiltered and equal opportunity to be heard, uh, it's very likely that the the best will succeed, and the 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 ones ball, built on false foundations will will um, very quickly fall. So. It is one point where some people say to me, particularly as a young person, um, why label yourself a centrist? Why not come out purely as a social democrat or as, or, or as centre left? It's one area um, where I, I'm, 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 I'm in huge agreement with conservatism in, the, uh, in a commitment to allowing other voices be heard. Um, as you say, the kind of traditional value of treating other people uh, with a common decency and respect, regardless of their political persuasions, unless those persuasions are... Um, highly detrimental to uh, societal progress and um, yeah so that is one aspect where I too would consider myself conservative um, conservative in my respect for differing political persuasions and in a willingness to listen to them um, in the hope of building a cohesive narrative um, for all of society to succeed because one point that has to be made is that uh, the greatest tool that centrists have to defeat populists is to try and help people recognize and make them tangibly feel that the, everybody has a stake in society. And though we, none of us are always, none of us are all going to reach the top of the economic ladder or the socioeconomic ladder, but everybody must feel like they have a stake in society and helping people realize that um, involves letting their voices be heard. So as I say, I, I'm, in, I'm in agreement with conservatives in that, uh, in that aspect. Yeah, and I've even gone so far as to say that it's not actually possible to be a real progressive um, without taking the conservative perspective seriously and into account. Because you know, if you if you're just focused on the change that you're trying to accomplish, and you give absolutely no concern to the possible negative side effects of whatever policy you implement, the odds that you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and make things worse, which is the opposite of progress, that would be regress go up, right? So the best way to ensure that your ideas result in actual progress and reality is to approach it with both a progressive and a conservative mindset, I would think. And would you would you say that's part of the reason that you you think of yourself as a centrist now? Yeah, I, I would. And like and even just my disdain for people who whose politics revolves around ideological purity or ideological rigidity. Um, is a big part of my reason why I would consider myself a centrist as well. I know the people, I know them very, very well, who um, supported Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020 and were opposed to supporting Hillary Clinton and were opposed to, uh, and are now opposed to supporting Joe Biden. And I think that a fundamental, almost ignorance of the importance of pragmatism in politics, as you said, po politics is compromised, politics requires um uh, politics necessitates a certain degree of pragmatism that doesn't mean that you discard your ideals that means that you have to be smart about how you work towards attaining your ideals so in the specific circumstance of the two-party political system um, and the electoral college in the u.s 
it makes no sense whatsoever as a progressive to be so fixated with idea, uh, ideological um, purity to uh, reject someone who agrees with perhaps 50% of your agenda in favor of letting someone in as a result that agrees with absolutely none of it and that you abhor. So like a certain sense of pragmatism is required and just isn't, isn't um, prevalent amongst people who, who self-identify as progressives in the U S. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with that. Uh, it's also a problem with um, the radical alt-right at the same time. By the way, I don't really, while they might call themselves conservative, I don't really consider the alt-right conservative because as I said, I, I, you know, part of the reason I left the Republican Party is because I think when the alt-right became ascendant, um, they betrayed all of the values, the con- traditionally conservative values that the Republican Party was supposed to be standing for. Um, so it's not clear to me in what way they are conservative other than in name only. At this point, something that you said uh, about ideological purity um, made me think about what's going on in this moment in another way, too. I've been wondering if maybe the decline of traditional religion in our societies um, has resulted in people looking to politics as a kind of like secular religion um, where they're not thinking about it practically, but they're thinking about it in terms of virtue signaling and ceremony um, and giving them their lives a sense of purpose and making them feel like good people. Do you think there could be something to that? Yeah, I mean, like, there's always been a degree of of political polarization, especially in the US. I mean, in all honesty, like, the European perspective of the US and even the Irish perspective of US citizens has always been that they have been uh, extremely um, extravagant, and not necessarily in politics, but in general, that the US does things bigger, and I'm sure they would say better, but... um, the, the, the US has been polarized politically and societies have always been polarized politically. Um, it seems like for one reason or another, you attribute, attribute it to maybe the idea that people have, have lost um, uh, finding meaning through religion and are now trying to find it in, in, through other forms such as politics. But it seems as though now more than ever we're polarized. One, one idea that I'm really interested in is, is that, that um, the rise of social media has really amplified and exacerbated this polarization. Um, I mean, with each login, it can feel like we're more and more divided between left and right. I think the kind of setup of social media um, sites uh, and their algorithms, which kind of create your content based on who you already follow, what you already believe, um, makes it very easy for people to kind of separate into their own different camps, their own tribal groupings, um, only to kind of throw a, a rock or throw a grenade at the other side um every now and then rather than actually ever dealing in any triumph in any kind of constructive debate um so that's the the rise of social media i think uh it will be interesting in in a in a hundred years time to look back and say did this kind of worsening of polarization and unwillingness to listen to each other and find common ground um coincide with the rapid uh rise of social media. Yeah, that's a fascinating um, topic. I'm <clears throat> I'm a, a little agnostic about it myself. I mean, on the one hand, it's obviously true that when you have algorithms that are just, you know, keeping you trapped in an echo chamber in a bubble, um, that that's likely to result in further polarization because people aren't being exposed to other ideas. And, and, and I think YouTube is the worst because it just keeps sending you further and further down the rabbit hole of crazy town. 
um, uh, the longer you're, you're on there. It's, it doesn't just keep you in the echo chamber, but it sends you deeper down the rabbit hole of whatever echo chamber you're in until suddenly you think the earth is flat. Um, so that's always fun. Yeah. Like even, even a couple years ago, the, like say 10 years ago, the description would have been that social media had become an extension of the news media. And it's my belief that that has now reversed in the sense that social media now leads the news media. If you look at the US, for example, with my, with my um, experience with the progressive brief, I mean, the good journalism succeeds in its capacity to tell the news in a way in which, uh, to tell the news and offer analysis in, in a way in which forces the reader to think, to rethink what they previously thought, um, what they previously believed. Um, it now seems as though journalism is being conducted on the basis of what is going to get clicks, what is going to succeed, what um, does uh, what does the readership of social media demand? And so what that what that facilitates essentially is even a polarization of media. Um, I mean, it, it's it's a historical thing to get into, but uh, Reagan's um, Reagan's uh, undoing of the fairness doctrine in media, but even internationally in Ireland, we see it has uh, it, what has occurred is that media. Um, dis distrust in the media has coincided with the emergence of a new form of media, one which is ideologically based. And so you have organisations on the right, like Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, which is going to, which people know reading is going to offer you this sort of conservative outlook, um, and it's going to create your news on that basis. And people on the left have, uh, as you say, YouTube shows like the Young Turks that they know is going to create news on that basis. And so they aren't really exposed to any intelligent ideas from the other side. They don't have um, a news source uh, in often, often cases um, to offer them unbiased or completely objective um, portrayal of the news. And so that, that has had even, even more disastrous consequences than the divide on social media is that the way in which we even receive news, never mind debate news, has even become polarized on the basis of ideology. Yeah, that's where I was about to go is because um, it seems to me that social media isn't uh, totally for blame, or at least the algorithms um, for echo chambers aren't totally to blame. Because on some level, it's just a matter of what people want to consume. People vote with their eyes and their ears and their clicks. Um, and it, it seems that a lot of people don't actually want intelligent analysis or honest news coverage. They want something that's going to make them feel good. They want infotainment. Um, you can see that happening in the, the decline of the quality of cable news programs um, over the decades as well, where uh, you know MSNBC is going to give you one perspective and Fox News is going to give you another perspective. Um, so I, I think that the, the problem is deeper than the social media algorithms. I think it's that people are uh, not, losing faith in the mainstream media um, is one way of looking at it. To me, it seems more like they've given up on the the project of trying to actually be informed people who can make intelligent decisions about politics. And that's, that's why I think it's the religion thing in a way. If, if your goal is to try to understand the truth about the world, then you should approach it with more of a scientific mindset. But if your goal is to purify your soul, then you're going to be more dogmatic about it. And the mainstream media's like inability to adapt to these um, modernist demands in terms of the the a more kind of almost entertaining portrayal of the news or a more uh, digital way of telling the news, which kind of smaller outlets have have perfected compared to them, 
is definitely attributable. But would I be right in saying that while you always had the left-wing perspective offered by MSNBC and you always had the Fox News perspective offered by, um, or sorry, the right-wing perspective offered by Fox News, you used to be able to rely on CNN to offer you the actual objective portrayal of the news, which isn't the case anymore because an objective reading of CNN shows you that it has become um, essentially the anti-Trump network. Yeah, that's um, that's one way of thinking about it. I, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree that it's really possible to have totally objective news or unbiased news, but I do think that there's an important distinction between honest news and dishonest news, mm-hmm. and 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 between intelligent news and stupid news. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, and um, you know, it, tr- Trump is, as I said, he's not a normal Republican. Um, College-educated white voters used to be a reliable voting demographic for the Republican Party until very recently, and they've abandoned the party like crazy. Um, and I think that says something about the direction the party is going. So, to I'm not I definitely do not suggest that people get their information from cable news at all. You know, I'd rather that they read the the Economist or the Wall Street Journal or something yeah. like that. Um, but CNN, I mean what does being objective mean? I mean, when you have a guy who is an existential threat to civilization in the white house, do you bend over backwards to pretend that's not the case in the, in order to be objective? I mean, where, where do you go with that? A hundred percent. It's, it's really, it's a really interesting conversation. The example that I always use to illustrate how that, as you say, is not the, the true idea of objective uh, objectivity is that, um, on the issue of climate change, is it object is objectivity to say, okay, um, thanks, uh, we're going to have a debate now between um, a Harvard world-renowned scientist who's going to explain the dangers of climate change, and now um, we're going to talk to Ricky, who lives in his back shed and believes that the 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 world is always fluctuating and that climate change isn't a real thing. I mean, that's not objectivity, but I think that uh, CNN, if they actually um, challenge Trump on the plentiful supply of things uh, upon which he could be justifiably challenged the whole time, I would support it. But sometimes as someone firmly uh, opposed to Trump and everything he stands for and his brand of politics and his, uh, and his supporters as well, um, the way in which he interacts with his supporters, I mean to say, um, it, it frustrates me sometimes when I see CNN almost clutching at straws in the ways in which they uh, um, attack Trump. I'm thinking of a particular example about oh, it was something silly about um, how TikTok kids had trolled Trump or something. And in all honesty, I just couldn't imagine um, CNN having covered Obama uh, the same as they have covered Trump on a multiple of occasions. When I say there is so much to attack Trump on on his merits, but sometimes I just feel like it's, uh, it, it's, the, it's the facile stuff that they attack him on. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be an example of the silly too. I mean... Um, CNN's um, not it's not the New York Times, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's 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 a different target audience. It's a less educated audience. It's it has to be entertaining as opposed to informative. Um, and I think you're I think that that is a, a good example of how you can be honest or not. Perhaps if you've come to the conclusion as a network that this guy is such a threat to um, our way of life, then you feel like you can justify you know, exaggerating or, t- or bending the, the rules of journalism a little bit. And that is definitely not a good thing. Yeah, um, what, what, one, 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 so, oh, go ahead. Please tell me your thought and then I'll move on. 
because if you believe in the um, that Trump represents an ex- existential threat, um, you should know that by exaggerating stories on him or by uh, by treating him differently to how you would treat others. If you believe that the U.S. voting electorate are are relatively intelligent and perceptive, you should know that you're doing the anti-Trump movement a disservice because you're handing the narrative of the bullshit narrative of fake news and uh, a bat with which to beat you, and you're um, you're helping Trump's cause uh, because before CNN started engaging in this, I read a report the other day: the fake news narrative was not being was not that successful it was successful amongst trump's core base but it wasn't appealing to anybody in the middle ground whereas now it actually is because people are starting to recognize yeah cnn does gutterly hate trump and it's starting to impact their um the 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 way in which they cover the news so that results in people either not watching cnn or watching them and not really um not not so much believing but not so much paying not paying attention to the to the news they cover yeah, and if you're a populist who believes that you're part of a great religious awakening of the common man who's going to usurp the power of the evil elites at every network, right, which would include presumably uh, Fox News as well, um, then you're you're not going to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? You're, you're going to assume that if their coverage of this guy is different, it must just be because you know, this guy is looking out for the little man, he's going to help me and the evil elites are trying to stop it. Um, that is uh, an all too compelling narrative to a low information voter. And, and well, I mean, the low information voter has a new meaning nowadays, too, because some of these people think they have a lot of information. I mean, some of them spend 15 hours a day watching YouTube videos. It's just that their um, anti-intellectual and anti-expertise worldview means that they don't have critical thinking skills. They can't tell the difference between a good source and a bad bad source or a logical argument and an illogical argument or a fact and a lie. Um, so they think they're very informed. A hundred percent. And the issue is not so much that the people who are anti-intellectual and populist, um, and I'm talking about the real extremes now, uh, exist because they've always existed, but now they're they're being given a platform through social media and there was no problem and there would be no problem when, um, with them having a, a large platform on social media if people um, who weren't uh, anti-intellectual and who weren't populists were able to more easily differentiate between the people whose expertise is derived from years and years of studying and uh, numerous degrees and qualifications and people whose um, kind of platform is, is has, has been won on just completely ill-informed or false information which they've gotten off YouTube or just on blogs. I mean, I was always astonished with the idea that uh, with my blog, when I was 15 years old, had relatively relatively no um, idea about uh, politics, had absolutely no idea about economics. I was being treated like some esteemed, astute observer with commenters saying, thank you so much. This is the news site that we've been calling out for, um, unlike that nasty mainstream media with their with their degrees. So like the fact that anybody can set up a blog um, for a hundred euro or sorry, a couple hundred dollars and be treated like a journalist um, on an equal playing field is, is quite, uh, is quite um, a challenging development. But I'm sure a, a point that some people would make is that, again, it's down to fundamentally human nature's fault as opposed to social media's fault or blog platforms fault because, you know, 
why 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 do we believe people so easily who don't have actual actual qualifications why 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 do we preference ideas that appeal to our emotions more than our um uh, um more than uh, than ideas that appeal to science or that actually um add up in terms of uh, economics so it's it's challenging though it is challenging yeah and um this is an example i mean i i, I guess i guess that's kind of what I meant when I said it can't entirely be blamed on just the algorithms. Cause you know, my, uh, ex co-host on here, Corey Cottrell is, um, the community developer for uh, a new upstart app called chirp, which is trying to be a combination of Twitter and Facebook, but without, uh, without the evil algorithms, <laughs> just giving people straight access to communication. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that experiment works out. But my suspicion, uh, you know, um, not to be a negative Nancy or anything, but my suspicion is people won't want it. I think that people choose to go to the platforms that have the toxic algorithms because they like what they like. I think the algorithms are very good at showing people what they actually want to see. Um, I don't think they're manipulating people. I think people are manipulating themselves. Yeah, and like it's it's something that unless addressed um, either through viable alternative applications or through a change in mindset of people, um, it represents a real, real danger uh, to um, the idea of we being able to create a kind of a cohesive narrative, a narrative which represents both the ideals of the centre left and the centre right, progressives and conservatives. Um, because, as I say, how are you supposed to um, even want to discuss politics and find common ground with the other side if all you're fed is information from your own side um, and oftentimes information which demonizes the other side and which focuses um, almost exclusively on the weaknesses of their arguments or the uh, badness of their, their faith or like the way in which they approach politics? So like the one thing that I, I always work on is that like I, I always put the caveat in there of course there are people whose politics is so deplorable that you don't want to discuss it with them or that they don't deserve to be listened to but as a general principle it's it sounds almost cliched but it's just so important that we begin to listen to each other um not in some kind of emotive way listen to each other we're all in this together kumbaya but listen to the ideas of the other side because I can't tell you how many times I've genuinely had pol- uh, significant policy um, changes to my own beliefs as a result of listening to someone introducing me to an idea and then doing my own research on it and finding that the the data and the stats backed up what they had told me was right in the first place. Yeah, that's what keeps me going with this podcast is uh, it's always really wonderful to hear from people on Twitter or wherever sending me messages and saying like, you know, I never really understood that and I really have a better handle on that issue now because of the conversations you've been having. And so I'm trying to do what I can <laughs> to have the sorts of conversations that are good for society rather than bad for society. Although, of course, you know, I'm just a flawed human like everybody else. Um, so it occurs to me that, you know, the, the just making just the, as you said, just giving a platform to regular people was inevitably going to happen from the moment the Internet was invented. Right. Um, and the 
we kind of lost our, our gatekeepers. For a long time, the media had a, an elite class of people who were highly educated, um, who were not perfect, but who had certain, they had been brought up with certain values of journalistic integrity. Um, and they were gatekeepers who decided that we are going to publish this, we're not going to publish that. Uh, and of course, you know, there were tabloid magazines and and, and whatnot, but, but uh, the average person wasn't going to confuse the the National Enquirer with uh, the New Yorker, right? Um, and and that that provided a kind of base, like a foundation of common knowledge for people, for most people to have discussions. Um, so part of it, part of it is just the fact that this technology has has um, democratized communication um, to such an extent that in in the long term might only be a good thing because it is great for free speech like you I believe in it and free speech um, but perhaps it, it's another example where education is lagging behind the technology if people aren't being taught if people aren't being educated and I, I understand it's happening better in schools now, but especially, you know, generations who were just graduating high school around the time the internet came out and so forth, those people um, are suddenly flooded with all this information they were never trained to process. Mm-hmm. And like, as, as you say, there, there is just so much potential surrounding the democratization of, uh, which has occurred following the internet, the decentralization of um, both information and influence. But I think that um, there must have been some point or in an individual's um political journey there must be some point in which they make a very specific very conscious decision that they no longer care more about the information which they share um being factual than they do it backing up the ideas that they hold so deeply and the ideas that the people that follow them and they are friendly with um also believe and that they know uh, will be shared as a result and will be positive, positively uh, engaged with. So um, I think the fun- fundamentally the, the best thing that could be done um, in terms of the education is instilling in people um, the, uh, the necessity of not only engaging with information and news which um, appeals to what you've already believed, but also news which is... Um, which challenges your beliefs um that 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 is that is fundamentally what needs to occur going forward um if we are to have a more balanced political discourse because like the more the, the you you can start off a centrist and begin reading center left um dialogues and um news news sites and then very easily transition to a more radical version of left wing politics and the um the opposite holds true as well so unless there's always this kind of challenging influence on you by accessing information and news from the other side and that is the best counteractive uh, remedy for that kind of radicalization which can occur through um, an insistence on the behalf of the individual not the social media algorithm the individual to say I don't really care about the actual information uh, which is true if um, if it helps the other side I only care if it helps my side yeah, exactly. And that, that desire to justify existing beliefs is something else that this phenomenon has in common with, with religious thinking, right? It's this idea that, oh, well, if that if this, asp- this part of the Bible sounds problematic to you, that must just be because you're reading it wrong. 
you should read it this way instead, because that's more compatible with what I want to believe about the Bible. Um, so yeah, you're definitely seeing some of that. I should, I should clarify, I'm not meaning to suggest that it's that the, you know, um, undereducated are the only problem here. There's actually like a huge problem in the intellectual class with trend toward a kind of neo-Marxist epistemology based on like postmodernism and identity politics, which teaches people at the highest levels of the academy that if you're an expert, that's bad. That makes you a, you know, part of the oppressor class. And if you're a white expert, then you're especially bad. And if you're a white male expert, boy, golly, you're just, you know, Satan himself. Um, and I, it, I understand it comes from a good intention um, coming from the far left in a way, you know, because, you know, certain voices have been centered for so long. Mm-hmm. You want to, you know, give a microphone to other voices, and that's a healthy thing. Um, but the problem is, then they start saying that, if you, you know, don't check your privilege, if you, if, if say like a black lesbian person says something and then you disagree with it, you're not allowed to voice, voice that disagreement. Cause if you do, then that's, you know, uh, microaggression or outright aggression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it, what should be, um, a, a noble goal of broadening the conversation just turns into a different kind of echo chamber, which has all the same problems where there's no pushback against the worst ideas. Yeah, and when you follow politics intricately, like online, you you come across obvious examples of that type of voice being being heard. Um, it's an interesting point uh, to make, and it might be one of interest to your listeners that um, there are many people, uh, conservatives, um, on uh, in Ireland uh, who discuss issues of like moral relativism and uh, identity politics being rampant on Irish campuses um, and the narratives which they uh, which they discuss are very very similar to the ones which are heard um, as a critique of the US uh, educational kind of institutions and structures but the truth of the matter is is that it's just yet another example of the US leading and Europe and the rest of the world following. The the US might be suffering, I wouldn't know enough about it, but suffering from an issue um, of this kind of identity politics, and um, particularly in academia and am- amongst the expert class, but Ireland certainly isn't. But then there's a, there's this suggestion, because people are reading it happening in the US, that it must be happening in Ireland too. Conversely, the one of the arguments that we hear time and time again from um, the, a left-wing brand of politics and, and from leading left-wing politicians in Ireland is the idea of Ireland being a greatly unequal society where wealth and wealth and political power concentrate in the hands of the billionaire class, whereas the evidence, again, bore, um, bears out that that isn't the case. Ireland, according to a recent OECD report, is one of the most equal societies in the world. But just because Bernie Sanders and AOC um, say that inequality is the defining economic issue of our generation. It isn't in Ireland. It's actually inequities in public services and the provision of public services. Um, that must be the case. So it's 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 very it's very interesting to always note as someone who follows U.S. politics but isn't in the U.S. that when uh, U.S. politics and U.S. political narratives lead Europe, um, uh, the U.K., Ireland, uh, France, Germany tend to follow. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the dangers of having somebody like Donald Trump, who has no respect for our allies and who sides with dictators on the global stage. I mean, that's going to have a terrible consequence in terms of it influencing other, 
you know, Western liberal democracies are going to see that and say, well, that's the direction the U.S. is going. Maybe we should also shut down trade and maybe we should also cozy up with dictators and maybe we should back out of NATO and maybe the, you know, keeping the peace in Europe is overrated. I mean, it's truly terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it, like it's, there's been so many examples over the last four years when I genuinely have thought to myself and I don't like dealing in, in hypotheticals and I don't like, um, uh, uh, reflecting excessively on the past unless it's with this with the uh, specific goal of learning from the past to better the future but I can't help but think so many times on the international stage that just wouldn't have happened under uh, a Joe Biden or a Hillary Clinton or um, a, a John McCain or a Mitt Romney or a Marco Rubio where Trump just re- represents such a unique threat to international stability it, it is genuinely very worrying And so much of it is really, honest to goodness, just a consequence of the fact that he is an absolute idiot. Yeah. Right? I mean, I I think he's also a little evil and a little selfish, but that was less of a problem when he was just ripping off contractors in New York City. I mean, that's still shitty. But now um, the combination of his idiocy and um and his selfishness is is setting an example for the entire world like this is this is how we want the world to be run we should put somebody in who doesn't read books and who sees everything as a zero-sum conflict between himself and the rest of the world and like to um like the within the u.s as well trump similarly to kind of as, as we're talking about internationally but I feel as though I was reading recently that U.S. conservatism has fallen and actually the amount of people in the Gallup poll who identified as a moderate had overtaken those who identified as a conservative or a liberal. But you see, I, I mapped the fall in conservatism and it was almost directly correlating with the fall in Trump's appro- approval ratings far, uh, following the recent race relations and um, handling of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. The 2020 election in November holds the capacity to essentially, as many as almost all presidential elections are, and certainly re-elections, um, to be a, a referendum on Trump. My worry is, is that the, as you say, for so long the rest of the world has looked at America, has tried to emulate America, um, and uh, has has almost yeah been in awe of America and their 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 self confidence. There was a period where we felt very bad for America um, after Trump was uh, first elected, and it, it was it was becoming obvious that he was going to be as bad. Actually, he was going to be worse than people were thinking he was going to be. But genuinely, Trump's lack of intelligence um, has people now thinking: um, Is are, are the American people to be as trusted as they previously were if they are willing to uh, elect Trump in the first place, in the first instance, and certainly if they are to reelect? Uh, to re-elect him, um, the issues seem to be bigger uh, and more systemic in America than Trump himself, if you understand where I'm coming from um, in terms of uh, an ignorance on certain issues. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, and I wouldn't hold it against Europe for judging the average American, especially if Trump is re-elected. Uh, w- one caveat I would throw in there is it's entirely possible that he will lose and then still win because of being able to cheat in any number of ways. My my deepest fear is that we're going to turn into a banana republic like Russia, where you know we're a democracy in theory, but not in practice. Um, and it, it, what you said about the fall of conservatism is very concerning, right? I, I, I've definitely heard some people, the sorts of people who think that 
anybody who would even entertain conservative thoughts must be a bad human being will say, oh, well, that's only a good thing, right? Like our society will be perfect if someday there's just no conservatives left. Um, but you and I both know that's not true and that it's, it's not going to, it just like it wouldn't be good if there were no progressives left. We, you need to have both mindsets operative in a democracy in order to, um, truly improve things. Yeah. And in, in, in other times I would agree with you, but as I say, since there seems to be such a correlation in, in purely in the polling, um, between approval ratings of Trump and uh, self-identifying conservatives, I don't mind seeing conservatism fall, um, even if it if it be temporarily, just to ensure uh, the defeat of Trump in November. Well, that hopefully it's just a sign of people doing what I did, right? So I didn't drop uh, the conservative yeah. label, but I left the Republican Party, right? And I, I think it's important to remind people that Republican is not a synonym for conservative. That probably most Republicans, well, at this point, certainly most Republican voters are not conservative. So just because you leave the party doesn't mean you can't be conservative. You could be a conservative Democrat. Uh, yes. And I think I think people who hold genuine conservative values are mostly moving to the Democratic Party. I, I, I It was quite amusing. I don't know if you watched the Democratic convention and the Republican convention here, but there were more big name, like obvious, obviously there were more Republicans who spoke at the Republican convention. But if you take like really big name, important, influential Republicans from recent history, there were actually more of those at the DNC convention than at the RNC convention. I think like the divide which has occurred in the GOP um, following the rise of Trump and say since he has won the presidency is that of we're starting to see those who genuinely believed in conservative principles versus those who um, have entered politics. I'm thinking specifically here of Ted Cruz very, very clearly um, purely uh, as a kind of platform to further their own career and who um, have like a lust for success and power. Um, Trump in almost every way, particularly before the election, was not a conservative in terms of policy, whether you looked at uh, his, his stance on trade, um, his, uh, for years and years and years, his, social, his rhetoric on social issues wasn't conservative. I mean, I couldn't help but almost laugh at the idea that so many people who had opposed Trump in the way in which he should have been opposed on the basis of policy, very effectively calling out the fact that he wasn't a conservative and falling in line as soon as he he won the presidential election because they knew that that would best serve their own interests. I mean, they're bad for doing that. it's, It's morally reprehensible but it's actually ignorance to follow them as a supporter because at least they're gaining something from it. At least their their position is is um is bettered because of their kind of ignorant follow uh, following of Trump. But just a normal voter voting for them in Senate elections and going to vote for Trump in November is just it's it's almost ignorance. Yeah, I liked Marco Rubio in the Republican primary, and I think that if the D- the GOP had chosen to follow that direction instead of the Trump direction, it would be better positioned um, as a party. It would actually have been more in the interest of the Republican Party um, to follow that direction, because part of the problem is, uh, the, as it is right now, the GOP couldn't win on the coasts to save its life, and that's because they are alienating um, – right-wing, economically right-wing voters on the coasts who aren't bigots. You know, um, the party needs to uh, give up on pushing um, bigotry and and just instead just focus on the purely economic argument, which would actually appeal to the coasts just fine. 
Um, so I was really sad to see Rubio bend over for Trump the way he did. Um, if hopefully, if, if Trump is uh, walloped at the ballot box, um, people like him will you know, quickly pivot back. But I think you're absolutely right. The, the way they embrace Trump is an example of not, not just putting party over country, but also putting partisanship over their own ideology. It's a betrayal of their own values. Yeah, and it, it suggests that they never had those values in the first place. But one one grouping like Project Lincoln have impressed me very much in terms of the narratives that they have come up with um, to defeat Trump. I mean, they always get uh, people that I am very friendly with who despise Trump and hope to see him lose are not big fans of Project Lincoln because they um, they believe and probably correctly that Project Lincoln. Uh, the, um, are opposed to Trump because from almost a, a conservative perspective, as in they don't find him um, traditionally conservative enough, which is true. But one one narrative that they have come up with that I think is really effective is the idea that this election is a is a choice between um, America and Trump, American values, traditional American values, and Trump. I mean, the GOP have always done well um, getting what I call the patriotism vote, but that shouldn't be allowed uh, this time round when. The presidential can their presidential candidate is so di- diametrically opposed to the values of America economically, um, in terms of trade on the international stage. Uh, he's proven himself to be at odds with what a moderate Republican or a Democrat would stand for. Um, even in terms of the the cabal that he is running, I mean, why should why should Trump be allowed to to claim to be the ca- um, the character and the candidate of law and order? when so many of the people that he has associated himself with down through the years and even since he's entered politics um, have been found to be guilty of crimes by a jury of their own peers. Uh, there's, there's ways, there's very effective ways to take on Trump from a conservative perspective. And I'm only saying, I'm only illuminating that because obviously we're going to take Trump on from a liberal perspective in terms of um, uh, bigotry and uh, racial tensions have heightened. The coronavirus was poorly handled. Um, the need for change in the healthcare system, uh, um, a, a public option, you know, uh, ed- educational reform. Obviously, that's going to occur. But there are there's a role for conservatives who have left the GOP um, to play as well in Trump's defeat. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I was um, always a more liberal Republican, um, and uh, that I mean, I mean, I live in I live in California. Um, I just I'm I'm fiscally conservative, and what I would have called socially progressive, but I'm I'm actually even reacting against some of the overreach um, on the far left on social issues, as you heard me talk about a little bit a second ago. So that that. Uh, paradigm is shifting. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. There's a difference between patriotism and nationalism, right? And that you can't be both. Uh, a patriot, especially in a country with the, the foundational values of like the United States, is is some is not somebody whose um, vision of your country is a matter of blood and soil, but rather uh, a set of values that people who believe in liberty and freedom um, are, 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 are Americans, not just people who happen to be born here or who have the right skin color. Yeah, no, um, a hundred percent. And I, I always try to remind people who have lost complete faith in America, um, (laughs) that, uh, it was a very specific set of circumstances under which Trump won in 2016. And I was very worried at the time and predicted that he would win because I thought that Hillary Clinton was a very poor candidate. Trump had the lowest approval rating ever of a presidential candidate, according to the polling. Um, uh, and Hillary was second. Uh, I thought that she was, um, 
in, in, a, in a time when people were calling out for something different and uh, there was huge anger, huge, huge frustration, it was almost a slap in the face to them to um, nominate a candidate who was representative of the status quo in so many ways. So I think that Hillary was, was more... Uh, Hillary was always going to be more easily beaten than somebody like Joe Biden will be, even just because Joe Biden, for all his faults, come across, comes across as a bit more authentic uh, than Hillary Clinton did. But the biggest issue that Hillary Clinton failed to deal with um, in calling the Trump supporters deplorables and in kind of uh, um, rejecting, not even uh, trying to analyze what could lead them to support of Trump was the, I think that one of the defining issues of that election was the idea, as you say, of kind of this um, right-wing idea, kind of alt-right idea, actually, of nationalism versus globalism. Now, how you deal with that issue in, try, in trying to persuade people to not believe that you are a globalist shill and that Donald Trump is the savior of American values and the future of America is a different story. But I think not even recognizing it in the context of that election where it was playing such a large role in make America great again versus, um, you know, kind of an association with a very internationalist brand of politics was a mistake that proved costly, I think, particularly in, 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 in certain states, which would have been uh, swing states. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, obviously, it was a really big mistake of hers to use that term deplorable, however accurate it may be. Uh, but I'm not running for office, so I can say it. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, part of the problem is I think I suspect Hillary Clinton, um, you know, just knew all too well why, why Trump voters, um, like Trump. I mean, there, the Republican party had been using the Southern strategy to, uh, to attract, uh, ex Dixiecrats to the party. And, um, you know, as with her husband was part of the third way where the Democratic Party moved right on economic issues as a response to that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that's just that's so I think she understood exactly what happened that these people left the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party didn't b- abandon them. That's the that's the story they'll say is the Democratic Party abandoned the white working class. Well, no, the white working class left because they didn't like that the Democratic Party supported civil rights. And then the Democratic Party had no reason to pander to them anymore because they weren't voting for them anyway. That's the truth. So does in 2016, would Bernie Sanders have had a better chance of beating Trump? Yeah, very possibly. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting conversation. I don't, I mean, <laughs> um, Clinton was the conservative option in that, in that election. And in a weird way, Sanders might have even been the conservative option because even though he is radical on economic issues, he's at least not, you know, hostile to democracy and the rule of law and the constitution. Yeah. And like in, in the, in the election of, of anger and the election of feeling disenchanted, um, Sanders would have been the anti-establishment candidate versus the anti-establishment candidate uh, versus Trump in, instead of Trump being able to frame Hillary Clinton as a continuation of the status quo, which so many people were felt left down by. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it would have made, made it a, particularly made a difference in the handful of swing states that helped Trump eke out an electoral victory. Uh, so there, there really is something to that. Although in this case, I, I'm convinced that Biden um, is more electable than Sanders would be in this environment. Because I think right now, um, people are reacting against the status quo still, but the status quo has gotten worse under Trump, and he's now associated with it. Yes, I, I agree. Yeah. 
And the, the, the states which Hillary Clinton lost in, by the way, where Sanders and many of them in 2016 had beaten her so heavily in um, the primary. Now, that's, that's a point that we've laid out for Sanders to, to maybe have beaten Trump instead of Hillary. Um, two words might have stopped him from doing that being democratic socialism. Yeah, very possibly. That part of the problem was, uh, and there were Republican operatives who were just chomping at the bit, hoping yeah. that Sanders would be the nominee for that reason. So, you know, that's uh, it's a difficult to speculate about that because we don't know what would have happened after they spent, you know, a billion dollars running ads associating Sanders with uh, the Soviet Union. Yes, yes, yes. Um, okay, so yeah, I, I mean, personally, it bothers me a little bit when I do see the left kind of defending Trump voters. And I know that's not exactly what you meant to do. You're talking more about political strategy and rhetoric. And I actually agree with your point. But yeah, I mean, you know, when they say make America great again, they mean like we want ethno national socialism. When they say drain the swamp, they mean we want to stamp out all dissent from from politics, right? When they say law and order, they mean they want to abuse the justice system in order to push through their own agenda against the rules of our system. Um, and, and I think it's important to translate those things in order to see we are not dealing with people that we can persuade. We're dealing with people we need to simply defeat. There, there is a, there's a true to that. Um, there's, there's, there's certainly people uh, upon who vote upon that basis. I'm, I, I also though, th there is a grouping, which I believe, um, selfishly follows Trump purely on the basis that they believe that his uh, economic agenda would best serve their interests than, um, than a Democratic candidate of any persuasion would, be it a Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. They've been trained to think that ever since Reaganomics um, uh, came into the discussion. And so I'm sure you would say that most of these people who are, uh, who are stout, uh, devout believers in um, fiscal economic policy uh, have left Trump because they are they find everything else about him so reprehensible. But um, as many of those people as possible should be appealed to by a Democratic candidate. Oh, absolutely, and I I think they are being right. Uh, it's um it's unfortunate though that the word socialism is um, becoming more accepted um, in Democratic circles because that if anything was if anything was going to stop fiscal conservatives from happily moving over to Joe Biden it would be that i have a question for you do you do you think that maybe part of the reason that the us is responding so poorly to access to you know uh, the de democratization of communication, um, social media, etc. Uh, it, it's partially education related, but it's not like it's not like the U.S. is that far behind in education. Um, Western Europe, um, generally, I, do you think it might be because of we're such a melting pot, we're such a diverse society, and it just turns out that you know maintaining a strong democracy in an incredibly diverse society is just hard. It, it could be part of the reason. Um, if you look, for example, um, to a lot of the Nordic uh, Scandinavian countries, which someone like Sanders points to as being as ranking as some of the happiest in the world and more most cohesive in the world, they're very uh, homogenous um, societies. Uh, there's there's no denying that. Uh, one thing that um, that always frustrated me on ter in terms of the um, the the word the usage of the word socialism within the Democratic Party um, turning away potential middle ground voters was the idea that what, what Bernie Sanders, um, from a European perspective, but also just from a political theory perspective, um, believes in, for the most part, is the idea of social democracy as opposed to democratic socialism. And so I think that if you were to 
described to the average American voter in a very honest way that social democracy is a system which would result in their taxes uh, of the lowest, middle and um, highest socioeconomic classes uh, being raised. But in return, uh, their minimum safety nets would also be raised. They would be likely to have a more um, progressive perhaps medical for Medicare for all um, health healthcare system or a public option system um, education might become more accessible and affordable that that might appeal to them more that rather than using the words democratic socialism to describe the ideas that someone like Bernie Sanders espouses and then they stop listening well many do yeah no I think you're right about that and um, I I don't know whether Sanders does that because he's just ignorant of political science um, or if it's because, um, you know, the, the the Democratic Socialists of America is a, a you know, a third party slash essential non-entity. Um, but they have uh, and their public statements have said that they see social democratic reforms as a stepping stone to their ultimate goal of actual socialism. So that could be where Sanders is coming from. And the, 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 the policy that makes me suspect it's where he's coming from was actually his federal jobs federal guarantee, job, yeah. which is getting about right as about as close up against actual socialism as you could, as you could want. Um, and it's a bit scary. Uh, but yes, I know. I mean, well, of course, you, you know, you said center left and center right, right? Well, this is something that people need to put into perspective. We already are a social democracy. The U.S. is not as far toward the social side of social liberalism as the uh, as Western Europe is, but we already are a social democracy. We have a mixed economy. We have um, a rather robust social safety net. And so the debate is about specifically how do we want to do that? How high should taxes be on the middle class, right? How generous should the programs be? But it's not as if there's any real right wing anywhere in any liberal democracy where there's actually a, you know, a groundswell of popular support for gutting the entire safety net. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And that's, it also makes the case almost though, that it should be more easy to persuade people that it is that um, social democratic principles aren't a dirty thing because there's already so many of them rampant within the provision of public services um, in the US. One thing I always respected Sanders for, um, particularly when I compared them to some of the more, uh, compare him to some of the more populist left-wing politicians in, in Europe and in Ireland, is that um, many, many left-wing politicians offered the electorate the best of both worlds, saying, we're going to abolish many of the taxes, the property taxes, the income taxes on the lowest earners and the middle class. Um, and then simultaneously, we're going to ramp up investment in public services and improve the provision of public services. And we're going to do it by taxing this completely estranged um, uh, middle or uh, completely estranged hyper hyper rich man that you've never met before but he does exist and he's definitely going to pay these taxes instead of moving um his uh, assets somewhere else where which would make far more um sense for him to do but sanders always said from my reading of the debates down through the years no if you want a medicare for all system taxes will rise on the middle class and and he he argued that the benefits of a medicare for all system by cutting out the middleman um, would mean more money in their pockets, but that he did accept that their taxes had to rise. And I always thought that he was he was one of the few politician prominent politicians internationally who offered a very honest social democratic platform of increased taxes for increased um public service public service investment as opposed to decreased taxes 
and increase public service investment and then some other fella who's really really rich is going to pay for it yeah no that's a completely valid point and i also give him credit for that although this last time around he was asked multiple times exactly how much taxes would need to go up and he never answered it but you're right at least he was honest about the fact that they would need to go up um so i'm sure you're familiar with the concept of accelerationism (laughs) yeah um because it occurs to me that that is the closest thing to a rational argument for this populist um, rejection of the system and the status quo that you and I are both opposing, um, it see, it appears to it seems to me that that is just a naive idea. If they think that helping a fascist turn us into a banana republic to the point where our votes don't matter anymore and we have a, a militarized police state is somehow going to help them achieve their progressive goals faster, they are just backwards on that. What's your take on that? If anybody believes that after the last four years, they're not worth listening to, uh, would be my statement on it. Because wow, that is that's strong, but that's I, I don't I wish I could disagree. I can't. No, it, it's a really like it, you can you can argue for uh, reasons um, which are far more valid than that. Uh, they're not worth listening to, of course, in that regard. As in, I would say, okay, I don't want to hear your reasoning behind it. Not that I wouldn't listen to them in other. <laughs> in other arenas but the, the the reason is very simply that the the US does not have ranked choice voting it does not have proportional representation and until the time it does it has a two party system where in november either donald trump or joe biden is going to win and i am so vehemently opposed to the idea of donald trump being reelected for another 4 years that i can't see any justification for not supporting uh, joe biden um under such circumstances yeah, and people who, you know, um, don't take seriously the threat that a demagogue like Trump poses within a democratic system are people who don't know anything about history or even what's going on in parts of the world right now. But it also just reeks of of privilege, to be honest, like the the idea that you personally are comfortable enough to wait until the day that the grenade uh, thrown at the system finally blows up and then some completely unattainable unthought out um, brilliant system uh, emerges which will never happen but like if anything has taught us not just in this in the circumstance of Trump in the US but also that of the unfolding Brexit in the UK is that populist anti-intellectual movements based upon anger and frustration and the idea that this system is not fulfilling um uh, its its purpose as good as good as as it possibly could, and um, therefore we should blow it up. Uh, is just so. Um, it's something that I I genuinely can't fathom, and I really hope that young people who tend who seemingly tend to be kind of uh, moving towards that sort of perspective um, don't do it because if they do, it'll only be after our economic comfortability and our social liberties are kind of impacted will be when we realize. Yeah, I mean, that's the first point, is that even if they were to succeed at completely blowing it up and turning it into anarchy and starting over from scratch, just ask yourself, how many times in history have you created a system better than the one we have now, which is the best kind of system that has ever been successfully achieved in human race? So the answer is zero times. How many times have they created this perfect utopian system out of total chaos versus what actually happens in failed states, which is horrifying, right? 
Um, and so that's the first thing. And then, of course, the second thing is they're not going to succeed at blowing it all up. Much more likely they're going to turn us into a militarized dictatorship. Yeah, that that's certainly a plausible argument. Um, so I want to segue just a little bit because you said something really fascinating about U.S. influence and optics. You know, like uh, what people perceive that income inequality is a big problem in Ireland, right? Yeah. Because uh, Bernie Sanders is talking about it here. Um, that strikes me as as very informative um, for my listeners um, to do with U.S. politics, because the same thing is true here. You know, like how much of a real threat is socialism versus what's the perceived threat of socialism when it comes to political strategy and rhetoric? Optics is everything. Uh, so can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I, I, I found that fascinating. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, for example, the it's very important that um, in terms of political strategy, that the specifics of both the time and place are taken into account to maximize outcomes. So in Ireland, for example, the idea of rampant economic and income inequality and billionaire classes owning everything was disproven in a recent OECD report, which showed Ireland to be a highly equal society compared to our um, developed countries' uh, counterparts. So in, in response to this perceived falsified um, idea of billionaire classes running rampant in Ireland, um, which even sounds strange and untrue. Uh, the the left wing populists who would have been kind of associated with a Bernie Sanders type of politics or a Jeremy Corbyn type of poli- politics in the UK came up with the idea that they wanted to abolish the local property tax, which is currently applied on all household owners um, in Ireland. It's a it's a modest amount and an, an annual payment, and it raises about four hundred eighty five million euros a year. And it funds local government services, which are really, really vital here. And instead, they wanted to replace it with, drumroll, um, almost an exact replica of Bernie Sanders's wealth tax uh, proposal and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax proposal, except she didn't go as far. The issue, of course, is that a local property tax, such as the one that we currently have, has already been proven in European countries to be the greatest um, a kind of equalizing mechanism in society. It's highly effective um, at, uh, at obviously um, accumulating taxation income, but also it takes it from the right areas. It's very difficult. Uh, the, um, the home that someone owns is generally one of the greatest indicators of their wealth. So the wealth tax that they, or the millionaire tax as they refer to it as, um, wouldn't work in Ireland because there are so many alternative countries for um, people to move their their assets to under a wealth tax. It's very difficult to move your house um, to a different to pick up your house and move it, but you can move your liquid assets. So that was an idea founded in the US. Uh, well, no, not founded in the US. Founded in the US in recent times, reemerged in the US. It was already in Europe for quite some time. Bernie Sanders popularized it again, and Elizabeth Warren picked up on it. And then the Irish political parties on the left wing decided they wanted to go at it, even though it had no chance of being a successful um, and or effective mechanism in Ireland. But the idea of a wealth tax, coupled with the idea that there is an uber, uber wealthy section of society in Ireland, which is just um, which is which is a, a byproduct of uh, our economic inequality, which do- doesn't exist. Um, is yeah, it was it was really it was a really strange thing to see as someone who who knows the politics of the US and the politics of Ireland and knows the fundamental differences that are there. Yeah, so that that's uh, very um, informative that people can be so wrong about the actual 
state of what's going on economically and politically in their own society purely because of something they're reading, um, uh, which in this case doesn't even have anything to do uh, with uh, Ireland. It's just what Bernie Sanders is saying. It seems to me, too, that if even if you did have a huge problem with income inequality, it would be so easy for super rich people um, you know, to just uh, go elsewhere in the EU to avoid that problem. And France, that, France found that out very quickly. They reintroduced a wealth tax um, not too long ago, and they uh, revoked it after that happened. There was a mass exodus of um, of uh, liquid assets, and it's actually something that, if people are interested in finding out more about, Andrew Yang did a fantastic um, dismantling of uh, the idea of a wealth tax and its weaknesses, highlighting that you know it's it's an almost it, nobody likes to see gross inequalities, but it's about um, it's about exploring and uh, looking at the actual tangible policy ideas that actually are well suited to tackling the issues. Another example that I, I, I always remember Andrew Yang doing very well on was the idea um, put forward by Elizabeth Warren of um, ta- uh, putting, uh, introducing a lobbying tax. And of course, everybody should be in theory, in, tra- in favor of taxing lobbying. But Andrew Yang pointed out that putting a 75% tax on um, the amount spent on lobbying uh, would prove very ineffective when it is estimated by a 2009 Priceonomics um, study that uh, the benefits of lobbying can be up to 22,000%. Uh, 22, and of course, democracy dollars was his alternative proposal. Yeah, and democracy dollars um, is giving money to regular people um, as opposed to just you know taking more money. Uh, that, that's one thing that I love as, as a more conservative Yang supporter. That's one thing I love about him is that he's thinking you know more about using the government in order to empower individuals uh, as opposed to just accruing more and more power and wealth for the government at the expense of individuals. Um, so another area where you pointed out the optics of the influences, you said that there's this perception in Ireland that there's a, a problem with postmodern identity politics and neo-Marxism in Irish universities, which I can't imagine there's what, maybe a couple dozen of them, right? <laughs> so it should be pretty easy to look into. Apparently, it's not as um, a bit, as much of a problem there, but there was nevertheless this perception that it was this huge problem. Yeah, well, there was this idea that like the the culture wars, well, it, it's, it's actually a really, really um, well-recognized theory that the culture wars of the U.S., at any given time, very quickly get um, transported over to Europe. And so, of course, the one at the moment is this idea of like political correctness gone rampant, um, which it could be argued is the case in the US. Um, from, my, from my own reading, I would argue it is the case in the US. But it's just not the case to, uh, to anywhere near the same extent in Ireland. Yet that doesn't stop certain, say, um, right-wing university organizations attempting to recruit on the basis that if more of us aren't, um, don't sign up to a conservative brand of politics, there's this army of politically correct um, anti-free speech, uber social justice warriors ready to take over our our six national universities at any time. (laughs) That's quite amusing. I mean, I guess you could, you know, you could say that maybe they're just concerned that the influence from the U.S. means it's just a matter of time before it becomes a problem. I mean, you're right. It is a bigger problem here. Uh, It's a fair, it's a big enough problem to worry about here. um, And it is uh, more influential than a lot of people on the left want to admit. Um, But of course, it's not as if it's totally taken over all of our universities. It's more like certain, you know, like humanities departments as opposed to, you know, the the, um, science and mathematics and so forth for the most part are 
remaining um, sufficiently rational for the time being. Yeah, like it's it, it is very easy, and it's very important to recognize that it's very easy when you see this like highly emotive one event of somebody being cancelled when they shouldn't have been cancelled or the mob screaming at a very reasonable person for being reasonable um, to think, oh, this is a really systemic problem. This represents a really threatening um, development uh, to our country and to each individual over the coming years. But, you know, sometimes a more balanced outlook is, um, is better. So my final question for you as we wrap up here is a three-parter. Um, basically, uh, the Irish system of government, as opposed to the U.S. system of government, you have a good handle on our system, um, and not all of our listeners are as familiar with yours. So one, how is it similar to ours? Two, how is it different? And um, three, what could we learn from those differences? Okay, so Ireland has um, the best system of of the best electoral system, in, in my opinion, anyway, it's that of uh, proportional representation through a sang- single transferable vote. And essentially what it means is that we will go into um, a polling station, have 12 candidates uh, on the ballot and rank them from 1 to 12 or as far as we can get um, uh, recognising them. The votes will then be distributed and a quota um, is uh, calculated. When each candidate makes that quota, their votes are distributed amongst the other candidates in terms of um, those who rank them one, if they win, their number two votes are distributed. Um, then when the next person comes in, their votes are distributed. It's a very long process, but essentially what you end up in is the most accurate representation of what, uh, of what voters wanted. Um, so that's the system. The, uh, the, the biggest um, similarity would be that for the past hundred years of Ireland's history, there have been two big parties, despite that system, which could, you know, see five, six parties of similar stature emerge. But um, there have been two big parties. Only two parties have ever actually led a government in Ireland. So that would be quite a similarity. And then, of course, the big difference is that the, the leader of each party is important because uh, upon winning or upon forming a government, they become the prime minister of the country tasked with fiscal policy, social policy, etc. But the big difference would be is that there's actually not quite as much focus put on um, the leaders of political parties than would be the case in the US of almost reality TV politics revolving completely around the individual. Um, there's more focus put on policy, on the actual strength of uh, a cabinet which can be formed. Um, everybody has a good idea of which cabinet would be formed if a government is to win. We will know the Minister of Finance, the Minister of Health, the Minister of Public Expenditure, etc. Um, so, yeah, that is a big difference. And in my opinion, anyway, it ends up with uh, better outcomes if you can tell what the whole administration is going to look like as opposed to uh, who, just who is going to win and who is going to lead. Yeah, that's all very interesting. Um, so having a ranked choice system still trending toward two parties um, makes me, I mean, I, I 100% support switching to a ranked choice system, but that just goes to show you that, uh, you know, anytime you have a democratic system where 51% of power is relevant, um, people are going to have to create coalitions. And it seems like over time, the coalitions might naturally trend toward being parties. Um, that said, because of your ranked choice system, those two coalitions are likely to be better representative of what people actually want. Um, so that sounds like a good thing to me. Um, as far as like your point about there being less focus on leaders in a parliamentary system and more focus on a cabinet, that also appeals to me um, because uh, it lends itself a little bit less to populism. It's a bit more elitist in a good sense of meaning that the people who 
par- parties choose to put in charge of their cabinet um, are chosen by, hopefully, ideally, other people with experience and knowledge that is relevant to the subject as opposed to just ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And it stops the like the ludicrousy of debate, which precedes the first few months of every presidency in the US of different nominees coming completely out of the blue. And especially this time around, we saw some crazy choices where you have, as I say, there uh, would be spokespeople in place for four or five years prior to the election, the spokesperson for finance, the spokesperson for education, the spokesperson for health. And then a majority of the time, those spokespeople become the ministers um, upon winning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a a patriotic American here in the good sense of really believing in the good ideas that founded our government. But, um, you know, uh, you guys uh, had a chance to learn from our mistakes. uh, And now we should be learning from your refinements. yeah, I, your point about ranked choice voting is also interesting too, because if that's starting to become popular uh, here, it's starting to pass in cities and and states, and it it occurs to me that part of the reason you might have it um, on the national level is because Ireland is uh, smaller um, than the the United States, so maybe it's maybe we just have to you know um, get get it one one state at a time here, and then eventually the idea will spread far enough that we can take it to the national level. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a lot listening to you. Thanks for running the progressive brief. And I would recommend that our listeners all go check out what you're doing there because you are contributing in a very valuable way to our conversation. No problem. Thanks for having me on. And, um, we all enjoy listening to the, uh, moving forward podcast on, uh, with the brief. So keep up the good work as well. That's always good to hear. And moving forward is our gumbo. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.